God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Jesus, who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which God has granted to us his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with excellence, and excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with familiar affection, and familiar affection with love. For you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Master, Jesus Christ. Thank you, thank you guys. Way to go. Good job, Adam. Stephanie, great work going through all the ands and the ands. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Good job. Thank you. Well, if you have your Bibles, you could turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, that's where we've been for the last few weeks. Um, as you know, uh, the kind of habit of our faith family is to go into seasons where we want to kind of immerse ourselves into a specific place in Scripture, um, a book of the Bible, um, uh, certain passages and stories of Jesus or whatever it may be. And the hope and the desire of this time is not simply a transfer of information, um, but a, a desire to help us be able to chew on it, to digest it, and to let it shape and form our lives. I mean, that's that's the goal of this, right? And so I just say that as a way of reminder that all we're talking about today is not merely meant to be just a transfer of information, but is meant to help us be ones who rest in, who, who chew on, who live out these very things that we talk about. And, and don't we want to be the ones who live out the things that Peter said? The, the very last words that Stephanie read in verse 8, don't we want to be ones who possess these qualities with increasing measure so that we keep from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of, of our master Jesus Christ? I mean, isn't that what we're all after? I mean, it's a pretty profound text to think about it, right? That here we have Peter telling us that we have everything that we need in Jesus and that all that we need in Jesus, have Jesus having given us that, we are able to live into the fruit of that. There's a way to live that's effective in that. There's a way that actually bears the very things that we desire in this life of faith, right? So I would think that, it, that this would be a pretty pivotal kind of text for us, right, as the people of Jesus who want to follow Jesus. And so what we're going to do over the, this week and next week is spend some time kind of immersing ourselves in this text to kind of see what it is, help us kind of ground into it, not just in this time, but the goal and the hope is that outside of this time, we're doing the same thing, right? That we're continuing to meditate on the scriptures. We're continuing to meditate upon the words of one who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who desires for his faith family to follow Jesus in the same way in which he follows Jesus. And so, so we're going to be here in this, these, these qualities for a couple weeks. So let's, let's just jump in. Let's kind of jump in and kind of remind ourselves what it is that Peter's actually saying to us. Last week we saw this, that in a subtle way, Peter is speaking to the heart of his faith family. You'll remember that the people Peter is writing to are not Jewish by tradition, by birth, right? They're Greek people. Um, they have a familiarity with the scriptures. His first letter helped them connect their lives into the stories of scripture, into the story of Jesus, to see kind of the foundation of what it is that they're believing, what they've experienced in Jesus and where it's found. But here in this letter that he had told us will be uh, his, his last reminder, right? He's about to depart this, this temple, this, this tent, this life that he's living, and he wants to remind them of the things that they already know and are established in, 
because he wants them to keep coming back to these things. So like most likely, everything that we talk about today is not going to be new, right? It's going to be stuff that we already know. But Peter says, this is what I want you to be reminded of, because this is the essential thing. And he does it in a language, in a way that actually doesn't have a lot of scriptural references and connections, right? It's, it has connections into cultural and traditional stories. He uses specific phrases and words purposely to invoke images of stories that, that these, his faith, Greek faith family, his Hellenistic faith family, uh, had heard from childhood. Stories of how humans and gods related and interacted, how uh, stories where there's divine patrons granting gifts and promises along the way as heroes quest for honor and, and wholeness in life. Stories of persevering triumph, of tragedy, and of warning. Stories that shaped what the fellow Jesus followers desired out of life. Because even though they were after Jesus, wanting life with Jesus, it's still these kind of foundational stories that they grew up with that gives them, that drives them in their daily pursuits. Right? That, that, that shapes what they're after in life. And Jesus, it's easy to, for Jesus just to become a part of that, right? Just become um, an amalgamation of the rest of the things that drive us, the stories that shape us, right? Rather than something over these stories, something that re-even shapes these stories. By setting Jesus within the proximity of these cultural foundational narratives that we talked about last week, Peter was reorienting his view for his fellow apprentices. He was helping them to see the world as it really is. A story, yes, but not exactly like the stories that shaped them. In many ways, the story of Jesus, which started in Genesis um, in, the, in our Hebrew scriptures, and had, had many similarities to the stories shaping Peter's faith family. We, we ended on that last week, right? This story that that Peter tells, that Peter references when he says partaking in divine nature is a story a lot like our flood story, our creation story, except it's the story of Atlantis. <laughs> it's a story that, that comes from, from, from Plato's telling of what it looks like to be related to God, a child of God, how that produces um, um, culture and um, shapes the, the good of people, but then all of a sudden um, becomes corrupt and needs to be, um, needs to be destroyed. A lot like our Noah story, right? Like Peter uses these stories to help connect, but doing so in connection to Jesus helps us see that there's a lot of similarities, but there's also some unique differences. It's not, he's not trying to contrast these stories like we tend to do, right? We tend to take stories of our culture and stories of like Greek myths and fables or whatever we want to call them, right? We're this far removed from them. And we try to say they're, they're going this way and the gospel's going this way. But in the reality, it's a lot more like they're going this way and the gospel's going this way. They're parallel, but they never touch and never overlap. And yes, there'll be contradictions, but what's happening is there's these similarities that are there that if we don't pay attention to, like if we think, are just, if we think the stories are just opposite, we end up in the wrong, the wrong corner. And we'll talk about that later as Peter gets into the false teachers and prophets. But if we can see that Jesus is just a little bit different, tells the story at a slightly different angle, we'll see that the very core of what we're after as humans, Jesus gives us. And that it is a different story, a unique story, but unique in a way that draws us into the things that we're after. And so it feels a lot less like we're trying to learn a whole new way to be human, which, if we're honest, that's what it feels like in faith, right? A whole new way to exist. Rather, we're finally able to see clearly that what we've always been after, what we were actually made for, we find in Jesus, in the way of Jesus. For example, we saw last week that um, in verse 1 he says that those, he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing or equal preciousness. 
And this idea of obtaining, this idea of receiving faith was a gift given to all of us, setting all of our lives on a different course, a unique course than it was before. I mean, that's true of our faith, right? To think about our own stories and how when we met Jesus, when we, when we began to follow Jesus, in some real way our life began to take a different direction than it was before, right? And, these, and these, this idea of receiving faith, uh, receiving something that was, that was given to us by divine will is like the stories of old, like the receiving the unbreakable shield with, uh, that Zeus gave Hercules or um, the, uh, the bag of unfavorable wind to control and make sure that Odysseus was always on um, a favorable wind that Aeolus gave him or even um, the cloak of invisibility, right, which was given to a young wizard to help him figure out who he was and get to the end which he was destined to get to. All these stories that we tell, um, Peter is trying to help connect into the life of, of, his, of his fellow faith members um, and followers of Jesus. Like these stories tell us something true, that our life is kind of on this quest and journey, that we have a purpose, we have an identity, we've been made for something, and there's someone watching out for us in it, helping direct us towards its fulfillment and its success. This is true. Those, those very things you long for, whether it's Perseus' sword or Zeus's shield or, or, or Harry's wand or whatever it might be, the things that you thought you just needed in order to be able to discover who you really are and what you're really for, Peter says that's been given to us. That you've received that. You've obtained that. That, that there is this one who is helping you discover and look for yourself and what you're for in this unfolding journey of life. Our life is a quest, and we're given all that we need to succeed on our quest. All things, as, as um, Adam read, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus who called us to his own glory and excellence, in verse 3. For it's through Jesus, Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his relation to the divine, his divinity, and to the relation to the Father, that we can participate in the ideal life, the life for which we were created, being called to Jesus' glory, as we talked about last week, is not a statement of salvation in the sense of humans being rescued from the world, but a statement of vocation, as N.T. Wright says, in which humans redeemed from that which corrupts are now to resume the task envisioned in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 8. A task and that the psalmist says is to be about the flourishing of the world. That we're called into this and given everything we need for this reality. So what Jesus is calling us to, Peter's saying, we can skip over the, the psalm there, Amber. Um, what, what Jesus is calling, to, is calling us to is back into our humanity. That's what you're called to. Everything else that you think you might be called to um, in this life, all the specifics and the nuances of what it looks like um, uh, vocationally for you, what, you what, uh, what your aspirations are, what Jesus says, he says you're called to be fully human, to be one who is God-imaged, God-fashioned, God-formed, and God-equipped, to participate in the flourishing of the world. That's what you're made for. That's what you're created for. That's what you're given everything that you need to succeed at. That's what you're called to. We're, we're called to Jesus' own excellence, glory, and excellencies. To a, a life of committed to the vocation of being human, of becoming partakers of the divine nature. Becoming ones who, because of our relationship to God, are able to live life in a way that draws out the good, isn't overwhelmed by good, 
isn't destroyed by difficulty, but actually brings about flourishing. Jesus grants us this life of thriving by restoring our kinship to the divine. Or as John says in the opening of his gospel story, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. The benefit is not merely a restoration of a relationship and its benefits, though. See, the stories that, um, that we talked about last week, the story that we ended on, the story of Atlantis, um, there's this, there's this reality of, or within the myth, within the story, there's this picture of these, these human divine um, um, people, right? Their father is Poseidon, their mother is human, um, and so they have this kinship to divinity in which they are, uh, in that kinship, able to really thrive. This is what, how Plato says it. He says in the story um, that because of the divine nature within them, they thrived, seeing clearly that even prosperity is enhanced by the combination of mutual friendship and virtue, and that wealth declines and friendship is destroyed by materialistic goals and ambitions. In other words, there's, that they saw, because of their, their interaction with divine nature, what it looked like to flourish in relationship to the earth and to, to the world, to using it for its good and its goodness that comes out of it, and in relationship to one another. But as, as the story goes, as they became further and further away from their divine relationship, their kinship to the divine, they became more and more human or more and more materialistic, they began to experience greed and lust, division and rivalry. And in the Greek story, the problem was always material. It was always the thing that, that they were lusting after that was the thing that was the issue. Other humans, glories of honor, uh, wealth, and all those kind of things, those were the problem. But if we notice that in, um, uh, in Peter's gospel, and this is where Peter begins to, t- in Peter's story, Peter begins to tell a little bit of a different story, right? So far, all along, like the story's kind of connected with the very kind of heart stories of his people. Our life is a quest. God is with us, giving us all that we need on the quest to be able to flourish and succeed in the quest. And the thing that we're questing after is this whole and complete flourishing life and restoration with God so that we can escape this world. That's the Greek idea. So that we can escape this world, escape the flesh, escape the things, that, the material things that are temporal and changing and aren't eternal. But read with me again in verse 4. What does is, what is verse 4 say? says, Jesus has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. In the ESV it says having escaped, but the word in the Greek is that you are escaping. It's a continuous process. You are escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of desire. There's no sinful or evil. Whatever your translation says, it's not actually there in the original language. Sure, we know that twisted desires are sinful and off, right? We know twisted desires are evil. And so there's an assumption. That's why it's read back in there in our text. But in the original text, it's just desire. And it's a singular desire. And it's, it's desire, the corruption that has come, is not because we live in the world. The corruption becomes because we desire something. Specifically, that we desire something that someone else has. Think about it for a second. Think about the way our, the Hebrew story starts. The creation story that, um, that, again, that Peter's listeners would have heard him talk about. He talks about the scriptures, First Peter, go back into it. They know the origins that the, the Hebrew writers have told. But do you notice how in, in, the, in the, those origin stories, 
the issue isn't so much with creation. The issue is with what is longed for from creation. What is longed for um, and what is accepted as the primary desire, right? Think about it like this. Even Adam desired what the serpent said was only God's. And that, that what God was keeping from them. Didn't he? Didn't they? They didn't, they didn't want the earth. They didn't want riches. They wanted knowledge of good and evil. They wanted what God had. Because they were enjoying all the benefits of the earth, right? Everything was there for their enjoyment. They didn't want more of what they had. They wanted what God had. They didn't want just more of what they had. They wanted what God had. And then we see right after that, right, that it moved just from this desire of wanting what God had to a division in, in marriage, right, into in relationship with the spouses, that the curse is that the, the wife would, um, would desire what was a husband's and the husband would hoard over her, lord over her what he thinks is his. And so now there's this internal rivalry within even this, this, this supposed to be beautiful relationship of marriage, this coming together to be who we are together, who God's created us to be. There's rivalry created within it. And we see that manifested very quickly, right, in the first brothers. I mean, what was Cain after? He wanted what Abel had. He wanted what Abel had. He wanted, he wanted the recognition that Abel had. He wanted the acceptance that Abel had. It wasn't that he wanted the stuff that Abel had. He wanted what Abel had received from his relationship to God, what Abel would appear to be his position of honor and authority, right? And so he not only desired it, he took it. Like Adam and Eve, he took it, but the way he took it is he took it through murder. It wasn't that the material world that drew our, our origin stories, our, our forefathers and mothers, um, to make God and spouse and brother rival, but rather desire to have what someone else has. And if you think that's off, if we think we're maybe missing something a little bit, think about this. The last of six of the Ten Commandments all have to do with desire. The last of the six of the Ten Commandments. The first four, we know... Love the Lord your God, right? Like there's only one God. Don't worship any, any other gods. Don't make any other gods. It's this idea of the exclusivity of God, right? We know that, that we're supposed to worship him, not to use his name in vain, to be honorable to him, right? But then the last six in relation to God has to do with how we relate to one another. And it all is wrapped around desire. Here's what Exodus, how it's, it's said in Exodus 20. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Why would we not honor our father and mother? Because we, don't, we desire to not be under their authority? Because we desire the things that they have for us? I mean, like, um, um, this is going to be a silly analogy, so please forgive me. Um, but it may help for a couple of us, at least guys. Um, and so uh, in the, the Marvel's Age of Ultron um, movie, you know, the, the Avengers, um, Ultron is trying to talk to... Um, um, to Wanda and to Petro, and it's like, um, you know, you, you guys create your end. Uh, what do you call them? Those things that fight against you, the things that want life, what's yours? Oh, yeah, children. <laughs> you, you create your own ends, right? And so you create your own rivalries. Like, why do we, why do, why are the, why is the story, why are there stories of us, of, of, of all the origin stories in, in history, why are they always of children killing their, their parents in order to create the world? Zeus kills the Titans, Marduk kills, I can't remember his name. But like there's, there's this whole formation, right? Like where children overcome their parents and therefore establish a new world. Why? Because they want the world that their parents have. 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. All those we do because we want something, right? And so this is why the last commandment kind of helps us get to the root of the other commandments. Verse 17, you shall not covet, or that is desire. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. This longing for what is not yours culminates in the taking of life culminates in you creating your own world outside of your parents' world, culminates in you taking, committing adultery, trying to, to break the bonds of marriage, stealing, bearing false witness, all these things that come out of desire. Desire for what is not yours. Desire what, for what is given to others. And listen, like, desire in and of itself isn't an evil thing. I mean, we are created to desire, and, and in, a, in, in good ways, desire is super positive. Um, desire, after all, remember we talked about this, that we're not, as humans, we are not created to be autonomous. Our desires don't just come from nowhere, right? You weren't just born, and then all of a sudden, you figured out what you wanted. Our desires are constituted. They're, they're shaped by others, by parents, by authority figures, by peers, by our culture, by rivals whom we internalize as models who become the unconscious basis for what we want. And in a positive way, our desires, um, uh, we desire what is around us. So we want to be like our parents or we want to be like those we share life with. We want the same things that they want that gives us kind of drive and understanding of who we are to know what to do. But in a negative way, we're prone to take what they have, or at least see them as ones who keep us from the things that we want because they have them. But what we've seen from Peter and through the teaching life and giving of his life is that Jesus offers us the very thing that we desire. The story of our scriptures is not that God is keeping you from your desires is that God gives you everything that you desire. There is no need to see God as a rival and thus no need to see others as rivals either for we are freely given by God all things that pertain to life and godliness. A calling to be fully and holy who we are meant to be, created to be, God breathed to be to flourish and contribute to the flourishing of others in our world. We live in relationship to a God who gives us everything that we desire. As the psalmist says, he delights to give us the desires of our hearts. Why? Because he's generous. He created us out of delight. He didn't create us as rivals. He didn't create us out of greed and lust like the mythic stories would have. He created us out of delight in himself. A delight to share what is his with us. How incredible is that, right? That's the difference that Peter's trying to get at. This is the foundation. Yeah, the stories are telling you right. You're on a quest. You're on this, this, this journey for life. God's given you everything that you've needed for this. And listen, God has given you everything that you need for this. He's sharing with you the very thing that you were after. And so Peter says, if this is true, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith. Make every effort to supplement this gift that God has given you. 
this life that God has given you, this way of seeing and relating to God and to the world that God has given you. Make every effort to supplement it. Now, as, as good Christians, we kind, of, we kind of get a little hesitant when we talk about supplementing our faith, right? Faith alone is, is our way of salvation, so we, we get a little hesitant there. But remember what Peter's talking about. Faith has been given to us. We've obtained it. It's, a, it's this divine gift to help us along the way, right? To, to ensure the success of the thing that God has created us for. And so, when he says supplement, he uses a term that would have helped them connect the dots of what's happening. So, like, he's, he's allowed them to picture themselves kind of in this Greek story, right? This, this mythic story, this quest story. And so the word supplement actually is the word to supply all that is needed for a Greek chorus. All that is needed to bring into vividness and clarity and experience all the things acting out in the actual play itself. It's the music. It's the, it's the, 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 um, the backdrop. It's, it's the choir singing. All those things that make make the motion on the stage connected into the bigger story that's happening. Because listen, if, if an actor was just out there saying a line, or better yet, in a ballet, if the ballet dancer was just, just running around and doing the dance, and there was no music, there was no prop settings, would we get the story? Would we understand what was happening? Maybe a little bit. But it's the music that brings it to life for us, right? That connects it into the overarching story, that allows us to experience the depth of it. And so Peter is saying right here, he's saying, listen, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. Take what you've been given and let it bring to life the story that you're in. Take what you've been given and let it bring to life the story that you're in. Listen, if you think this is a little strange, remember the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 of the talents. And how he, um, there's, a, there's a master who's going away, and so he leaves his, his trusted servants. Um, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, one gets uh, five, one gets two, and one gets one, right? Um, um, talent. He comes back. The master comes back. The one who invested five has ten. The one who invested two has four. And do you remember what the, what the servants say to the master? They say to the master, not just, hey, it worked. They said, what you have given us has produced what it was supposed to produce. It has done the work. All they were expected to do was take it and invest it. All they were expected to do was take it to invest it, and it did the very thing that, that it was supposed to do. It multiplied. What they were given, they didn't make it multiply. All they did was use, put to life, bring to life the thing that they were given, and it multiplied. And what does the one servant who hides it say? Why did he hide it? Because he knew that the master wasn't generous, that he, was, that he was strict and difficult, and that he kept from and took things that weren't his. He had an image of God that was different than the image of God that Peter paints for us. And so Peter is encouraging his, his faith family to see themselves in this story, to connect to this drive that has shaped kind of their life of what honorableness is, of what goodness is, of what happiness is, that their stories have shaped in them, connecting it to Jesus saying, hey, listen, all this has been given in Jesus. So take what you've been given and bring it to life. And so what does he give us? Quickly. Because again, we'll come back into these next week. But I want, us to give, I want to give us an idea of what these are um, in order to help us as we kind of continue forward to dive into them. 
So what do we supplement our faith with? What is it that, that we have been given that allows us then to, to bring about, to supply um, uh, the course of life? He says, first off, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. The, the word there translated virtue, virtue is also excellence or in some translations goodness. And it's good not in the moral sense, or at least not um, reduced to simply a moral a mor- morality. Um, but it's this idea of being, um, uh, being good at the thing in which you're called to. Like you're seeking goodness as itself, right? You're seeking what is good. It's a vision of, of a master craftsman, an artist, a musician, whose commitment is to their craft or calling to draw out of whatever they've been given, Again, think of a master craftsman, probably somebody who shaped a bowl like this. They've been taking what they've been given, and how do they draw out the, the most goodness out of that? How do they make it the best thing that it is meant to be? How do they, how do they ensure that it's the thing that, that is beautiful, good, and true? And there's a commitment to this calling, right? To not just to the end product, but, the, but, but to um, everything that leads up to it. And, and so when Peter says to supplement your faith with excellence, he's saying, hey, listen, supplement your faith with this drive to take what you've been given and draw out its goodness, to develop the skills necessary to do that, just like any craftsman would. A commitment to a way of life that actually produces good and draws out the good of the resources that you have. That's where it starts. You supplement your faith. The way you bring to life is your commitment to this being one who, who whatever you've been given, you're able to help draw that, the potential of that into its most flourishing potential. But we don't just stop there. I mean, if we stop there, then, then we just have, honestly, like really good technology. We have really good craftsmanship. We have society, Right? We have society. This is where society comes from. Like this striving to take the resources that we've been given, the abilities and gifts we've been given, and draw them out to the most flourishing. But, but we've seen already in our stories, in the Greek stories, that that never tends to end well. So there has to be something connected to it. That, that just pursuing that good is not the end good, right? That with goodness and excellence, there has to be knowledge. And we talked about knowledge last week. The word that Peter uses for knowledge is not primarily informational. Information's implied. It's not primarily personal. Personal's implied. It's intimate, right? But it's the knowledge of coming to know someone for who they really are. For coming, for, for coming to know someone for who they really are. And Peter says, again, as we've read in the text over and over again, that it's through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, that we have obtained these things, that we've been given this calling. It's this knowledge of Him, of who Jesus really is, that allows us to be ones who are actually good craftsmen. That Jesus, knowing who he really is, not the ideas of what we have about Jesus, not our, our thoughts of what he might be about, but actually knowing who he really is and knowing who the Father is through him allows us to be ones who craft the world, help bring flourishing to the world that we're in. And think about it, like who do we know God to be? Peter, Peter said it already, right? God is this generous God. It's the God who, who, like the father in the prodigal son, waits for his youngest son, looks for him, runs to him, 
keeps him from all the ridicule of those who would, have, who would have wanted to beat him, cast him out, keep him from returning, and draws him in and places him to a place of honor. But it's also the father who goes to the older son, who's, who's in and in kind of just self-pity, resentment, anger, comes to him and says, look, all this is yours. Just come on into the party. It's the father who uh, calls Hosea to marry Gomer, um, not because she's pure or that she will be pure, but because he loves her and wants to show how he acts towards one who continuously rebels and goes against this, this beautiful reality of marriage and foreness. That's the God that we get to know. And when we get to know that God and we craft, use our gifts and abilities in excellent ways, the world we create, the world we help bring to flourish, is one that's, that, that is the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? But listen, if we're honest, like, that requires a lot of self-control, right? Because our desires aren't always for the generosity of God. Our desires aren't always for what we've been given because we kind of like what others have been given in this thing. And so we can't just supplement our faith with knowledge. We have to supplement our faith also with um, um, self-control. And the idea of self-control here is not merely temperance, right? We tend to think in the Christian world that this idea of self-control is just not doing the thing that, that we know we're not supposed to do. But the idea of self-control, as we saw in Peter's first letter, is better translated the idea of meekness of being ones with humility, yes, but with humility live in balance and harmony with our vocation and calling. We live in balance and harmony with who we are in relationship to God and others. And so therefore we know in that balance when and how to act properly. When in that balance know when to let our emotions lead into, like, have anger at the proper time of things that destroy flourishing. And when, in that proper time, we were moved towards forgiveness. That's the idea of meekness and self-control. And it's actually the virtue that's contrasted with desire, right? It's not that we're not meant to long for things. It's that we're meant to desire things and have within us meekness. Jesus says in Matthew 5, and I think it's interesting, right? And it's important. What do you say in Matthew 5? In Matthew 5, the, the, the Beatitudes, all about living a whole and complete life, the very thing that we're after in life. Who's the one that gets to experience it in the earthiness? Do you remember? Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The, the ones that get to experience life in its... In, in, in harmony with how God's created and what God is doing are the meek. And so if we want to bring harmony into our pursuit of excellence, into our understanding of the world through the generosity of the Father, the patience of the Father, the goodness of the Father, then we have to be ones who seek and strive to be meek, to walk in this balance of, of, of peace, <laughs> of harmony, of, of um, submission to God's determination of what is good and just and his judgment, the, the manifest in weighed action and a balanced and appropriate response to the world around us. 
But as we've seen in the last year and a half in our country, being balanced, <laughs> appropriate response, um, submitting to the good and the justice of God that knows when to be angry and when to be forgiving, is hard to do. It's hard to be meek right now, right? In this time and age, to be one who's nuanced in a place where we can be kind of that, in that steadiness, that even-kill balance, that's not emotionless, it's not void of, the, of those strong things. It just responds appropriately because it's in relationship and communion with God, right? So what do we need? We need steadfastness. We, in order for us to, to live in our meanness, we have to be steadfast. We have to persevere in the long haul for the things that we're after. This word um, is meant to paint a picture for us, perseverance. It's a very Christian word, right? But, it, but it's this idea of, of ultra-marathon running, not sprinting. It's this idea of continuing the long race. But in the picture of a spiritual battle, in the, mixture, in the, in the picture of at, while you're at war, I mean, even the story of marathon, right, is in the middle of war. It comes in the midst of war, right? He's running to tell the end of the war. He's running to tell that the war is over. And as we saw last week, that's what Jesus is declaring, that the war is over. But, like, but you're still in the midst of it. Not everybody knows the war is over. The war's still going on all around us. And so we have to persevere, be steadfast in the midst of it. And what do we persevere and are steadfast for? Godliness, right? Godliness. We think, well, great, that's it. That's what, that's what we're after. I mean, that's what the Christian life is after. We're after godliness. And godliness here like, doesn't, like, doesn't simply mean like a life of morality. Again, it isn't just that, hey, you're living a good, moral, Christian, uh, biblical life, however you want to call it. Like, there's essences of that there, but listen to what, it, what he's saying. Like, that, that especially in a Greek context, this is the ideal, right? That the ideal person lives to be one who lives in the favor of the gods, who lives in a way that pleases the gods. Because in pleasing the gods, you get everything that you want. Like you get the honor, you get prestige, you get all the things that you're after, right? So in the, in the Greek world, this is where it's going to end. But what, it really, what, the, what that describes is a life not so much of following a set of rules, but it, it's one who lives in appropriate relationship towards the authorities in one's life and to those associated with that authority that lives in an appropriate relationship to the, to the authority in its life, and is associated with the authority. It's a word that came to mean justice. That lives with justice. In appropriate submission to the authorities in one life and those who are also subject to that authority. That's the whole first letter of Peter, right? Submit to every human authority, marriage, family, church, all those kind of things. He's like, hey, this is the way, this is what you're after in life. To, to live justly. But again, in the Greek world, this would have been it. If we could live a just life, if we could live an appropriate relationship to the authorities and those that are in submission to those authorities too, live with each other well, then we're, then we're good, right? That's all that life is, is meant to be. But we also understand this, like that, that our tendency to live, um, to qualify who the authorities are and who's subject to those authorities tends to, um, tends to divide us, right? And so Peter continues on with not only do we become godly, learning how to live appropriately in relationship to the authority in our life and the ones who are subject to that authority, 
to live justly with those who are in the same, under the same authority that we are. But then he says we supplement our faith with, and your, probably your translation says brotherly affection. But it's familial. It's not just, it's familial affection. Again, the Greeks would have ended in partaking divine nature by reaching godliness, by living justly within the confines of their own society, their own relationships. But Peter takes it further to where Jesus takes us in his Sermon on the Mount, to where not only are we called to love those who love us, but to love our enemies and to pray for them. To, create, to instead of seeing that our boundaries is those who are in the same submission that we're in, that it's just those here in this room, in this place, but it's to all those that are under the familial authority of God who's the Father of all. This isn't a call to love church people. That's what godliness is to some extent. <laughs> to act justly amongst yourselves. And that will play often justly amongst your community, people you kind of submit to different authorities with. But brotherly affection would have been something profound for the Greeks. To treat everyone as if they are your kin, regardless of actual relationship. That's offensive to us too, right? <laughs> to, that everyone and their differences are, are your relation. And you're to treat them in, the, in a way that they know that you're related to them, a mutual love, because you're born of one God and parent, companions and fellow heirs in hope, not because of something that they've done or not done, but because that's who God's made them to be as his image bearers, whether they recognize it or not. That, that it's not just about us getting it right here, but it's about us loving, familial affection, drawing in those even outside of this place. And that's why Peter ends with the, where we think he would end, right? Love. This flows naturally from kinship, that we supplement our faith with brotherly affection, this, this treating each other like family, um, which again, as we've talked about before, has positive and negative connotations, right, in our own histories, <laughs> We know how our families have treated us sometimes. We know as family members how we've treated others. And so, because even though family bonds are deeper and richer and you tend to be more, um, more dedicated and committed to those bonds than you would just like a chosen relationship bond, like a, a membership in a community bond, like Peter understands that we still need love to be the guiding thing because even in our familiar relationships we don't quite always live up to the expectation right but we supplement our faith with love a love of god a love of others a love that is life in the action of god and in god's action in life because love is is not only this, it's not a, a merely an emotion, right? Love in the scriptures, we can see it demonstrated in Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his giving of himself. Love one another as I have loved you, is what he tells his, his apprentices, right? That becomes the guiding thing that guides and glues all of the other things back together. Our pursuit of excellence our knowledge of, of what that excellence is in relation to how God's created it and the goodness and generosity of our Father, the, the meekness that's required and the steadfastness that's required to see those things flourish, 
to, to have to bring justice in the relationships that we were in, and to create a familial way of life with all those around us. And then Peter says, and that's why Peter can say in verse 8, for, um, for if these qualities are yours, that's how the ESV translate it, but again, in the original language, it's more of like, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, meaning you already have these things. These things are already there. They're implanted in you. The desire for excellence, the knowledge of who God is, the, the meekness in which you strive to live, like all that is there. The steadfastness, you, everything, you have everything given to you to live this out. So if you put this in place and are increasing in this, then your knowledge of Jesus, your knowledge of Jesus as Master and Savior will never be ineffective and unfruitful. The way in which Peter begins his list of virtues might suggest that, that he thinks his readers at this point possess only faith and that they have to add to their faith. That's not it, remember? It's not adding to faith. Like we have faith here and then, okay, let's drop in the coin or the ingredient or whatever it is um, of excellence, of knowledge, and then all of a sudden we'll, we'll get this mixture together and we'll have the thing that we want. No, he's saying, listen, like all this stuff is yours, so put it into life. Invest it. You've been given all you need. All that is Jesus's is yours and mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all that we need, we have. And it's hard to believe that. It's hard for me to believe that. Lord, I want, to, I want honestly to, to read these supplements and then go and try to figure out how I start adding to them, how I start building on them, how I start using them. And I think that's good in some ways, Father. But at the same time, like, Lord, I just want us to rest in the reality, as Peter says, that these have been given to us. And what you ask of us is not to go create these things, but to put into life the very things you've given us. More and more so. Help us, Father, to be ones who, in poorness of spirit and meekness, receive what you give us, and with joy and courage as peacemakers, invest till we see the name of Jesus proclaimed in our lives and those around us. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.